Welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast series. My name is Scott Miller, and I serve as your weekly host and interviewer now of the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. Globally, I am also the author of the new book, Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds, available now and based on 30 of our most transformative interviews from guests that appeared on our podcast. In fact, today I am in the presence of greatness. I am uh, honored to welcome back one of the 30 mentors, in fact, mentor number 10, General Stanley McChrystal, who has joined us once in previous episodes and today is joining us for the launch of his newest book called Risk, A User's Guide. General McChrystal, welcome back to On Leadership. Scott, it's, it's great to be with you. And I'd ask if you would call me Stan and, and thanks for having me. General McChrystal, I will do my best to call you Stan. It will not come naturally. I was raised as a gentleman from my parents. I'm doing the same with my three sons. So if I slip up and use the G word again, I'll be uh, hopefully pre-forgiven from you. You are a man of enormous contribution to our nation, to our world stability. That is not puffery. That is a very true statement. You are the, the leader of our um, intervention, if you would call it, in Afghanistan under a previous political administration as directed by the commander of our armed forces, our president. Uh, you obviously been impressed in the press very much lately due to the withdrawal of the U.S. forces from Afghanistan. I'm not going to spend our time on that today because I want to talk about the concept of risk, but I want to uh, remind our audience the selfless contribution you and your wife and your family have given to our nation. Whenever I meet you, I always off camera prod you to run for the presidency. Others have done the same by countless millions. You and your wife have demurred. If ever that calling comes again, I hope you will consider it because I think you would be an outstanding public servant and leader to our nation. I won't put you on the spot again. Oh, maybe I will, but hold tight for that. So anyway, General, you've joined us again, Stan. You've joined us again to talk about your new book called Risk, a user's guide that is a phenomenal leadership tool. Whether you are an entrepreneur, a solopreneur, you're an entrepreneur. Whether you're in public service or you're for an NGO or a not-for-profit, you've dedicated the last several years now to writing this book as part of your work with the McChrystal Group. It is now available for purchase at the time of this airing. What I like to do is start with this concept of narrative and the role that narrative plays with all of us in risk. There's a story, a very short story you tell, about then Vice President Richard Nixon. And I want to follow up by another story as it kind of builds this idea of narrative. Talk to us about the wisdom of narrative around risk and the story about Vice President Richard Nixon. Absolutely. Narrative is the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. It's typically what we want to be true. Sometimes it is aspirational, but hopefully it's also accurate. And in 1957, Vice President Richard Nixon was in the African nation of Ghana to celebrate their independence. And after the ceremony, he was walking around talking to people and he ran into a man and he was trying to make conversation. So he said, so how does it feel to be free? And the individual looked back at him and spoke with an American accent and said, sir, I wouldn't know I'm from Alabama. And the less my head would have been jarring for the vice president. But the reality was in 1957, United States, we were telling a story about ourselves, about opportunity, about equality, about all of the, the ideals upon which the nation was based. 
But in reality, for a big portion of our population, that wasn't real. Our narrative about America was not matched by the reality on the ground, particularly in places like Alabama. Uh, General, your book is not about uh, race relations or about social equity, although you talk a lot about biases and narrative, and we'll get to that in a moment. You share another story about the decision that Quaker Oats made not too long ago with respect to the branding around Aunt Jemima and some of the false narratives that actually were perpetuated about, about her. In fact, I think the phrase you use is something around it was sort of a, you know, a, a folksy white nostalgic narrative around her. Wrong phrase, but talk about that. Absolutely. And it, it links to narrative again. It's, is it real? And it's a real risk for any organization if what you say, what you advertise about yourself is not reflected in what it really is. The story of Aunt Jemima, of course, all of us remember Aunt Jemima syrup and pancakes and things like that. And you saw a picture of an African-American female, very much in a maternal look, almost a housekeeper look. And it was a very respected brand, but of course times changed and that was considered to be racist. And so the organization, the firm started with a story that in fact, this was an African-American entrepreneur who had made herself into an effective businesswoman and was a millionaire, but it wasn't true. The reality was it was a depiction of a lady who did exist, but none of that backstory that said, no, in reality, she was very successful in business. And so they caught them, they tied themselves in a knot by trying to claim something was true that in fact was not. And it forms a risk to the brand and of course to the organization itself. The phrase you use in the book, you talk about how um, it celebrated white nostalgia for an imaginary past. You know, the story I wrote about you, General, in Master Mentors, the theme was being on the right side of history. And in your previous book, you talk a lot about your own relationship with General Robert E. Lee, not actually personally, right? But, you know, I think you attended a school named after him. You lived in Lee Barracks at West Point, and your wife many years ago gave you a picture of him, and you, you very much respected many parts of his career, and at a very juncture, an important juncture in your life, I think it was just after the white supremacist neo-Nazi rally in Charlottesville where uh, hate was spewed and a person was killed, you chose to very unceremoniously but very symbolically in your own life to take that picture down and dispose of it after you know decades of having this in your home for very different reasons. I use you as a model of being on the right side of history. General, you work at and consult with the highest levels of organizations, presidents, prime ministers around the world, CEOs, board members, that is your world. That is not everyone's world that is listening to today. When you talk with organizations and leaders about risk, how do you confront them as they make their own narrative that clearly is perhaps the, the, the public eye or the perspective? They're believing their own press. What advice do you have for leaders? Leaders like me that aren't leading global national companies or countries where we build a narrative that is built in our desire to look good, but necessarily isn't built in reality. Yeah, this, this is a real risk, both the individuals, sort of your peace of mind for the rest of your life, and of course, to your effectiveness in your job. I would tell people first and foremost, be genuine. I've got a test that I apply to everything and it's my granddaughter test. I have three young granddaughters and everything I say or do at some point in their lives, they are going to judge. 
And I want them to be able to look at those things I did and not just be blindly loyal to the grandfather they loved, but to say, I am proud of the values he reflected. And so the first part is I tell people, your personal narrative and behaviors have to be congruent with your personal values. If you really believe something, you should say that, you should follow that. Now, when it gets hard is when you're leading an organization and there are often potential constraints or pressures not to reflect your values. Maybe because it's better for business if you hold your tongue about a a key issue. And there are times when I don't think you have to go out and beat a drum on everything you feel because your role in leading an organization, that might not be appropriate, but you can never find yourself pushing or doing something that is different from what you feel or know to be right. And this talks about getting on the right side of history. It's not putting your finger in the air and seeing which way the wind is blowing and seeing what everybody thinks and in focus groups and doing that. It is trying to figure out what is right, what you believe is the right thing, and then taking a position with that. I will guarantee you long-term, it will tend to be best for the business, and I know it'll be best for the leader involved. General, you wrote a book about risk, um, and you use the COVID-19 pandemic as kind of a recurring theme throughout the book to talk about you know, how different countries and organizations and leaders did or did not respond appropriately or, or perhaps even proactively. And you have a concept in the book you call risk immune system that even organizations and leaders need to be addressing. Uh, riff on that concept. What is an, a risk, your risk immune system? Yeah, I'm gonna back up just a tiny bit, Scott, give a background because I grew up dealing with risk but came to the conclusion that I never really understood it. And I think I'm probably about average in that regard. Most of us grew up thinking of risk as the product of consequences and probabilities. So the probability of something happening and the consequences if it does. If the probability is low, you don't worry too much about it. If the consequences are low, similarly, it's only when both the probability and consequences of an act go up that we pay attention and have to act. I'd urge you to think a little differently. I'd urge you to think about it as the product of threats and vulnerabilities. There are threats out there that can cause us problems, any number of things to our safety, to our health, to our business. And then there are our vulnerabilities. If you think of it as an equation, threat times vulnerability equals risk. If you're able to do away with all the potential threats to you or your business, then that's zero. And so risk is gonna be zero because anything times zero is zero, but we can't do that. We can't do away with the threats that come at us. We really can't even predict them very well. And so where does our agency lie? It lies in reducing our vulnerabilities because we can do a lot to control that. This brings us to COVID-19. If we think about COVID-19, it was the threat that was okay to hate. You couldn't be sympathetic with a pathogen and it was providing a threat to the entire globe. And so we got a great opportunity to look at different responses to this threat that came forward. And so what happened? The reality is at first we said, well, this is new and unexpected. And so we were right. We was okay not to be prepared, but that wasn't true. This was, it was a novel coronavirus, but it wasn't novel. We have viruses all the time and pandemics with frightening regularity. And the second is, 
we knew what to do about it. Our scholarship and experience with public health is actually very good. So we know how to contain it. And then third, we got a scientific miracle. The development of vaccines in record time should have set us up for threats we knew were inevitable, solutions we knew worked, and then this silver bullet that came in a vaccine. And yet look what's happened. Just two days ago, 2,363 Americans died in a single day. That is almost equal to the number of service members we lost in 20 years of combat in Afghanistan in a single day. And so our failure against a threat like this really should make us think, well, what caused that? Where did we go wrong? And here's we come to the human immune system, because all of us are thinking more about it now than we usually do. We are born with a human immune system that's a miracle. And every day, about 10,000 pathogens assault us. And they could make us sick or they actually could kill us. And yet we don't worry too much about it because our human immune system detects those threats, assesses them as to how much of a threat they are, responds to defeat them, and then learns from it. So it's more prepared next time. And we just go through life with this miracle protecting us. And it's only when it's not working for some reason, autoimmune deficiency or, or sickness, that we become more vulnerable and we think about it. Well, in reality, our organizations, and even we as individuals, have the same equivalent when it comes to risk. We have a risk immune system, and that's the ability to detect, assess, respond, and learn to those threats that come at us. The difference is we're not born with it, and it just doesn't automatically function like the human immune system does. It's something that has to be tended to. It has to be strengthened. We've defined 10 risk control factors that really determine its effectiveness. Communication, narrative, timing, action, uh, diversity, bias, and of course, topped off by leadership. And so when those 10 factors are working in relative health, and it doesn't have to be perfect, but working as a system, then organizations have the ability to both respond to threats and learn from that process so that we can move forward in a healthy fashion. And there are many things we can do to make that risk immune system stronger and make ourselves more resilient. General, let's riff on that for a moment further. Um, in the book, you talk about how different countries responded early on to the pandemic threat. You hold up Taiwan, we all knew, as a very, very sort of proactive uh, response to it, perhaps even a bit draconian from Western standards, but Taiwan did an exceptionally strong job early on at containing, identifying, and tracking, and so forth. And I don't think the same would be said for the U.S. I think there were things the administration did that were wise, like Operation Warp Speed, which you compliment in the book, and the ability to fund and to distribute vaccines early on. And all of us can armchair quarterback, and without setting you up to get political, which you won't, nor am I asking you to, what are the lessons from your perspective as a decorated general and leader? What do you think we got right as Americans? And what did we get wrong that all of us can learn from in our businesses and as leaders in our life? What are the lessons around risk that the American response can teach us, good and bad? Sure. Yeah, it's a great question, Scott. I think first and foremost, it was the, the scientific miracle of Operation Warp Speed. And it wasn't just in the development of the vaccines. If we actually look at it, the production and the distribution of vaccines was done pretty darn well. 
you know, in the initial distribution, there were a few hiccups, but that has actually been a very strong point. So we really came through in that regard, but we should learn from where we struggle. And where did we struggle up front? We struggled early with communication. We had mixed messages going out to the American people that confused people. And we had a narrative that was conflicted as well. There was a narrative from part of leadership, public health saying, these are the things we should do and we should act. And then there was a counter narrative coming, not just from the president, but, but him and other leaders who were saying almost the opposite. It's not as dangerous as we think, we shouldn't do things. And what we did is- I think the phrase them. was, it's going to magically disappear, quote, but go ahead. That's right, we'll be roaring back by uh, Easter, if I remember correctly. And so we sent this confusing message to the American people, which gave us a stutter step. And in that stutter step, several things happened. One, we got behind the exponential growth of a pandemic, which is the hard part. You have to make tough decisions before it's evident to people or you get behind it. Yeah. And then we fought COVID-19, not as a single nation or even better as a global community, we fought it in the United States as 50 separate states, and actually even more atomized than that as separate communities. We left different entities who weren't resourced or had the expertise to have the right equipment, to implement all the requirements in an effective way. And so it was a very inefficient way to go about it. So as a consequence, we've had a very difficult time struggling with a threat that should have been pretty manageable. There was gonna be a challenge from it, but the scope of it has been extraordinary. And now we've allowed disinformation to create increasing doubt. And that has settled on top of a political partisanship we already had, but it has created a percentage of our population that is skeptical or unwilling to be vaccinated. The challenge there is you can't defeat a pandemic unless you can get to the point where you have protection in a significant enough part of the population to stop the spread. It's like a forest fire. If, if the fire has paths of open, burnable timber, it will go there. And so you've got to stop that ability. And we haven't had the discipline or the focus to do that as effectively as we needed to. Uh, General, you bring up a great point, which is a, a, a foundational leadership competency, which is you often have to act on information you have that's going to be seen as very unpopular with your public, with your employees, with perhaps your investors, right? There, there are many times as leaders when we have information that may or may not be completely appropriate to share, it may not be complete information, but you have to make decisions that are for good of the company, for the organization, for your clients, for your, your citizens, what might be fiercely opposed with your opponents, or in now cases, your enemies. What advice do you give to, for leaders? As a general, you have obviously had to make uh, life or death decisions that will perhaps be second-guessed. I mean, look what's happening right now on the border, right, with all the Haitian immigrants, and you see now the news stories of only of the border patrols on the horses and the, the whips, and it looks like we're, who knows what's really happening down there, but it looks like we're, you know, dehumanizing these uh, uh, humans that are, you know, in an in in untenable situation. I'm sure there's more information there. What advice, practical advice, would you give to leaders on how to act decisively when they know it's going to be unpopular? 
Yeah, I would start with leaders have got to gather the right information so they have a real understanding of a problem. And this helps them overcome personal biases. It will bring diversity, different perspectives into the process. And it will give you the ability to overcome inertia because organizations, nations, societies have the tendency to either stay at rest, as inertia says, or stay in the same direction and speed. And so you are trying to change the status quo. So I think the first is get as much information as you can so you can build up your confidence for action, but it will never be perfect because you are trying to get ahead of yeah. a problem. The second is communicate. Have a clear narrative and communicate aggressively to the people that you lead and tell them what you don't know. Be honest with people, say, this is what we know. This is the basis for my decision. This is what I don't know, but, but let them into the logic of where you're going. Because if they understand that, if they understood that you're trying to limit the potential danger of a, pro of a problem by spending money, using resources, accepting other risks, that suddenly makes sense to them. If you show them the respect to bring them into that, to share that, then you'll often get more uh, support. And it also gets difficult because if you get in front of a problem and you prevent it from getting big, there can be an argument that says, well, it never was going to be a big problem and right. you spent a lot of money or you right. burned a lot of calories right. doing that and that was a waste. And so you can't always expect to get a thank you card for the best decisions you make. Sometimes you've avoided tragedy. People will never, because they never saw the tragedy, they won't sense the importance of the decision you made. But if you don't like those, don't become a leader. It's so well said. You can't lead by public opinion. It reminds me of the adage, people can handle bad news. What they cannot handle is no news or wrong news. And I think we need leaders in all of our organizations to recognize that. General, your book called Risk is organized around what you call 10 risk control factors. Very quickly, they are communication, narrative, structure, technology, diversity, bias, action, timing, adaptability, and leadership. The book is chock full of, of, of business and, and societal issues we all have lived through, including Hurricane Katrina. You dedicate the broader part of one whole chapter to really that Hurricane Katrina in the U.S. was really um, a failure in sort of risk management. You, you talk a lot about what happened at the, at the, the big the football stadium. I forget the name of the football stadium, what happened there. What are the lessons for business leaders, for community leaders, for elected leaders to learn from the American response to Hurricane Katrina? Absolutely. You remember Hurricane Katrina appeared in 2005. And a hurricane coming on the Gulf Coast is not a surprise. It happens pretty routinely. Yeah. And the fact that New Orleans is actually built below sea level means that anytime you have the threat of a hurricane and rising waters, you've got a significant threat opposing the city. And so you've got a known threat that's inevitable with regularity and you've got the severity of it to be likely. So the first thing leaders have to do is be able to make decisions in time. There were plans in place by the city of New Orleans and the state of Louisiana for evacuation and to take care of people. But those plans took a little bit of time to execute. 56 hours before Katrina actually hit landfall, it was clear that it was going to hit the city in a way that would require those plans to be executed. 
And yet leaders didn't make the decision to begin and order an evacuation until 19 hours before landfall. And you say, well, okay, they used some time, but 19 hours is a long time. Well, there was a plan to move people from the city out of the city by buses. And those buses were all staged in a location. But in the time that it got closer, knowing the arrival of the storm, many of the bus drivers had left the city. So they didn't have an adequate number of bus drivers. Also, as water started to rise, it was difficult for the buses to move around. So the evacuation plan fell apart. Then the Superdome, which you referred to, was to be used as a temporary evacuation site. And they thought they would bring people there, they'd be there for a short time and then evacuated out of the city. It ended up because the evacuation park didn't work, having 25,000 people in it. And of course, the, the logistics and the hygiene and all just couldn't keep up with 25,000 people. And the leadership didn't communicate effectively to the population what the real threats were, because the threat of Katrina was partly the storm, but once the storm passed, the greatest threat of rising waters that had come over and through some of the levees was really the greatest uh, danger to many parts of the city. And they didn't communicate that to people. And so people thought that once the weather cleared up and the storm itself was gone, the problem was over, but the problem was really just beginning. And so the inability to make clear communications, make timely decisions, and also in a few cases to stick to the plan because in the middle of this, they sometimes diverted resources for things that the plan did not have them do, which, which undercut it even more, made the response extraordinarily ineffective. Of course, once the ineffectiveness became obvious, the confidence of the population goes down. And when the confidence of the population goes down, you also get a less effective response by people because they don't have as much uh, faith in the government. General, let's pivot to the idea of adaptability. Thank you for that. We remember that story very well. Every mayor, county commissioner, leader in the nation should take lessons from what went right. I'm sure things did. And of course, what went wrong and all these natural disasters and all of these pandemics and wars that we're dealing with. You know, I think one of your risk control factors of the 10 in the book is adaptability. I would argue that, you know, post-pandemic, and that's more of a wish than anything, right? It's not post-pandemic, but for those of us who are vaccinated now, our, our risk is certainly less. Uh, there's two things that have changed that I've seen that are palpable for everybody that I know. One is your values have shifted. You know, what you value in life has shifted, as hence known now as the Great Resignation. People aren't held hostage in companies anymore. In most countries, the economies are rebounding in some form, and some they're on fire in a positive way. Everybody's values are changing, right, in terms of how we value our time, our mission, our family, our life, our health. What's also changing, I think, is our need to be nimble, agile, flexible, adaptable, being able to respond to, to risks and fears and, and you know, dreams that perhaps were crushed and say, well, that's not going to happen, so what's next? What's the, what's the importance of adaptability as a competency, as a risk control factor for, for everyone, for that matter? Well, if you think about it, for almost any organization, if it is not adaptable, it will ultimately fail because conditions will change. Think of a sailing ship. You set sails, you set the rudder, you do all of those things, but then the seas change and the winds change. And what you set that was right at one point is by definition wrong for another and could be dangerous. 
We tell a story in the book about a 20-year-old engineering student from the University of Oregon named Dick Fosbury. And in 1968, he had been high jumping through high school and college, and he'd been good. He got on the Olympic team. But the reality was he wasn't going to be world class. But he studied high jumping. And he came to the conclusion he had to figure out a better way. And so in the 1968 Olympics, wearing two different colored shoes, he runs to the bar, throws, him over, throws himself over the bar backwards. And he had determined that he could keep his center of gravity actually below the level of the bar and slide over backwards. And the description by a reporter at the time said the crowd was laughing so hard they didn't realize he'd won and he'd set a new Olympic record. Now, what had happened? Actually, two things. One, Dick Fosbury was a student of trying to do something different so he could win, but also conditions had changed. In the years of high jumping, when it had started, you used to high jump and there'd just be dirt on the other side or a little bit of sand, and then it went to some crushed uh, rubber. And by 1968, there were great big thick pads on the other side of the high jump bar. So suddenly what would have been suicidal in earlier days to throw yourself backwards and land on your spine or neck was suddenly safe. And so Dick Fosbury realized that things which people couldn't do before now could be done, but they weren't doing them because they weren't willing to adapt because they'd learned another way. And he was willing to adapt. And so he does this and he changed because now it's obviously that the predominant way people high jump. So when companies think about the need to adapt, they need to look at those two things. One, is there an impetus to adapt? Is there a need to adapt? Are conditions changing? And second, is the opportunity there? And too often we're either making a profit on what we're doing, we're selling buggy whips or we're doing it, so why would we change? Uh, or it's just a little frightening to change. Sometimes even when things are clearly struggling, because we've never done it another way, the concept or the, the fear is that if we try something different, we might fail. Well, I would argue ultimately, the status quo will always fail. And so if we don't have that mindset as leaders that we're really shooting at moving targets now, we'll, we will never be as good as we need to be. In fact, I think your opening uh, phrase in the chapter is, if it's stupid and it works, it's not stupid. I think it's a great, you know, litmus test for all of us, sir. Uh, let's pivot uh, away from just the topic of risk in your book to the topic of risk in the world today. Uh, you're on the news a lot. You've been in the news uh, tremendously lately because of uh, the American withdrawal from Afghanistan and the, I think, um, the knowledge that we probably needed to withdraw. The, the what was not in question, probably the how and the when was probably more the question. What are you seeing on a global scale as you travel the world, both virtually now and back on a jet giving keynotes on behalf of the McChrystal Group and your new book, Risk? What are you seeing are the biggest risks to the world right now, to humanity? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, there, are, there are some huge ones. I think climate change is an extraordinary risk. I would say disinformation is probably yes, yes, the most frightening thing to me right now. And that is because empowered by information technology, disinformation has the ability to influence single individuals into actions or whole groups of individuals into actions that are pretty terrifying. Now, it's not new. I mean, we go back to propaganda. We go back to Adolf Hitler and others 
who took disinformation and propaganda to a level that it affected world history. It literally caused the lives of millions and millions of people. But typically that was really only able to be done by certain people with a skill and leveraging a political party or later a state. Now that's been democratized. All of us have the ability to very efficiently push misinformation. And there are very few checks and balances and we as consumers of information are not yet good enough. We're not yet discerning enough. Maybe we're not yet mature enough to really be able to parse through and deal with that. Now, maybe we will be, but in the interim, I think we have the ability for big parts of the world's order to be affected by increasing extremism and going in areas with second and third order effects of other things. The other thing I worry about, to be honest, for the United States, you know, our country, is the power of our narrative. You know, our narrative must be congruent with the reality of our values, as we talked about with Vice President Nixon and his experience in Ghana in 1957. But what we have to be in the world now is a good partner. We have to be a good partner to our allies. We have to be a reliable partner to people, both in business and in foreign affairs. We need to be a reliable opponent to people who are doing things wrong in the world. And when I say reliable, that means they, we should be predictable. If people do things that they shouldn't do, America should line up on the other side and be prepared to take part in activities to help curb that. America's role in the world ever since the Second World War has been disproportionately strong. And most of us grew up with just almost viewing this as a birthright. America is influential and powerful because we are, because we're Americans. And I would argue that's not the way it is. We will be influential. We will be economically prosperous. We will be powerful if we decide to be. If we do the things that a nation must do to make our governance function, to make our economy strong, to make our foreign policy reliable and based on values. And so I think that the lack of a strong America, and I don't mean a muscular America that is that is dominating the world, but I mean a reliable uh, player in the world, is a, is a major threat. Bring it down 30,000 feet. What are the risks you see that businesses, global businesses, or small mom and pop businesses face, regardless of whether they're in Belgium or in Taiwan or here in America, what are the risks you see that leaders face in the business community? Yeah, I think the business risks are very significant. One is that globalization is here. We can pretend that, you know, it is not going to stay. There are some people who argue that, but we've seen with our global supply chains, we've seen with global finances, we've seen with the ability of actions in certain part of the world in relatively seemingly limited or obscure ways that affect economic markets that we are interconnected. And so every organization needs to understand its interdependencies, interdependencies with suppliers and customers, but also with just things in the market and society at large. We also need to understand that we are still, although we leverage technology, we're a talent-based economy. And so if we don't stop and get more intentional about developing our talent, then we won't be competitive in the world. And that begins at schooling at the earliest age, education, K through 12, and then at university level and in other programs. 
the development of our workforce is going to be a strategic determinant because everyone's going to be able to build or buy technology. That's not going to be only available to rich countries. And so the reality is the most competitive nations are going to have the best talent that can leverage the technology that anyone can have most effectively. And we can say we're in a global economy like I just did, but it's a competitive global economy. Yeah. So if you are not competing, if you're not running, you're going to fall behind pretty easily. General Stanley McChrystal, the author of the new book, Risk, A User's Guide, out now. You know, you're giving keynotes around the nation and the world virtually and in, in, in person in support of the book and the concepts of risk. You know, it's good training for a life of public service. Uh, you know, it's good training for the role of a leader. What's it going to take to convince Mrs. McChrystal to become America's first lady? I, I think all of us just need to think about leadership in America. And, you know, we don't need to be elected to be leaders. We need to be really good citizens. We need to be really responsible people in our homes and in our communities. And if we all do that, the person we have as president will be less critical. See, that was great training because you did a great job of deflecting my questions, sir. <laughs> General Crystal, an honor to be in your presence. The book is Risk, a user's guide available now. Thank you again, sir. We're honored to be associated with you. You are an American hero. You are a public servant in your own right and have been for the decades you served America as a general. Thank you again for your time. We appreciate you. And thanks for giving us a bit of a primer today on risk. Thank you again, sir. You're too kind, Scott. Thank you, everybody. What an honor to be with one of America's most renowned and selfless generals to our nation. The book, again, is Risk, a User's Guide. Pick up a copy. Pick up multiple copies for your team. This would make a great study group for all the leaders for perhaps over 10 weeks to go through the 10 risk control factors that the general writes about in the book. What a great 10-week uh, book club for the leaders in your organization. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. <music>